All right, I'd like to welcome our um, third uh, guest uh, interviewee on our program, The Courage to Lead uh, interview series. I'm really honoured to have this guy on the program, um, someone I've admired for many years. I've worked with him for a lot of years. Um, our guest today is Michael Willing, um, former Deputy Commissioner of the New South Wales Police Force. Um, Mick Willing, as he, as he likes to be taught, uh, known as, um, was one of the guest presenters to our leadership program at North Shore Police Area Command, and he has the distinction of being the only guest presenter over probably 15 years to be invited back twice in the one year because the, because the participants wanted to know more about who Mick Willing was. So um, welcome to the show, Mick, um, and I think we might just uh, get straight into it. Um, so my first question to you is um, kind of uh, who is Mick Willing what is your background and how did you become a police officer? Well, um, Al, lovely to be with you. Um, it's, it's a real honour and a privilege to be part of this ongoing series and thank you very much for that um, really, really kind introduction. So, look, you know, who's Mick Willing? Well, I've, I've thought a lot about that, certainly over the last um, six months or so, um, given some events that occurred in my life. But um, I, I guess it gets back to um, where I come from. And I'm a, I'm a Dubbo boy born and bred. I uh, grew up in, uh, in West Dubbo and, you know, with a, a fairly normal background, um, I guess my, my dad was a manager of a hardware store and my mother was a nurse and um, uh, I didn't come from too much in terms of means, but uh, my background in Dubbo really, I believe, is, is fundamental to who I am as a human being. So I'm deeply connected to the city of Dubbo and always have been. but. I had a, uh, a desire growing up at school to be one of two things, actually. One was an archaeologist <laughs> and the other one was a detective. Um, you know, and, and back then I joined the New South Wales Police Force in uh, October 1990. I went to the Goulburn Police Academy and I, uh, you know, at the time I tried archaeology. I'd gone to university for a couple of months, but I remember thinking to myself, I don't know uh, too many archaeologists around, so I might give the police. Uh, I had a desire, as I said, to be a detective, and that was sort of my, my underlying um, drive uh, once I got into the New South Wales Police Force was to work towards that goal, um, which I did. So um, in terms of, you know, I guess another step back from Dubbo, um, you know, I have one sister with a family who's still in Dubbo, mum and dad are still in Dubbo, so again, the connections um, for me back to regional New South Wales are pretty strong. Very good. I actually just lost a bit of a connection there for a minute. So it lost it when you talked about um, you'd done two two months of the archaeologist uh, archaeologist course. Um, uh, so yeah. was it university, and I and I was there uh, looking at it. it was fun, you know. Back then, I wasn't just turned eighteen. I was having the time of my life at university, but uh, I really thought to myself, well, how many archaeologists do I know? What is the realistic you know, uh, the realistic chance of me creating a career out of it, and um... so, um, so if I if I go, so you joined the the, the New South Wales Police in nineteen ninety. What what? Just give us a quick rundown. What happened to you? You know, what, what was your early forays into um, being a police officer in New South Wales? came out, class 247, came out in uh, April two, uh, 1991, and I was stationed at uh, Annandale Leichhardt in the inner west of Sydney. Um, yeah, the, it was a, a massive steep learning curve, um, as it is for all police officers coming out. I don't think anything's changed in that regard, but I was stationed at Annandale Leichhardt, uh, which 
what used to be the old eight division there and um, hit the ground running. I, I remember distinctly uh, my friends at the same time were at university and they were experiencing different things in life. But for me, it felt like I'd been thrown in the deep end and having and had to grow up very, very quickly. So, you know, you get out on the, on the, the streets of, of Sydney as a young person and you're going to... Uh, all sorts of different events and, and uh, confronting all sorts of different circumstances and some of those uh, initial memories are things that I'll never forget. Um, you know, deceased persons, car accidents, domestic violence, um, you know, some horrific incidents. But at the same time, um, surrounded by a really tight camaraderie um, that was really, really special. Very good. So one of the questions I like to ask people is, um, and you don't have to confine this to the New South Wales Police, what, what was Mick Willings' first experience of true leadership? That's a good question. Um, look, I think, well, I'll, 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 I will refine it to the New South Wales Police. So I, I had that desire to be a detective and, and pretty quickly I went into plain clothes. Um, I think I went into plain clothes around April 1993, so really a couple of years after I came out of the academy. And, um, yeah, there was a, a person there that was the uh, chief of detectives, um, uh, Owen John, or Doc, as he was called, Halliday, um, whose sons are, uh, are serving police officers now. And, uh, and Doc was one of those sort of really strong leaders. We had a really, you know, small, unique group of people in plain clothes there, but Doc just uh, had that, that gravitar that uh, I admired. He'd been um, a CIB um, detective, uh, so criminal investigation branch homicide detective, uh, which again sort of instilled in me, just watching him and just being around him, that sort of desire to one day work at the homicide squad, which I was lucky enough to do. But uh, his, the way that he sort of led with uh, that strength of character and, um, and the respect that I saw him, in him was uh, probably my first and, and real earliest memory of leadership within policing. Okay. And what was it about him? Uh, he just, he just the way he carried himself and the way that everyone around him respected him because of the way that he carried himself. Okay. He, was a, he was a good guy. He had a heart of gold, but he was a hard guy as well. Hmm. And, um, you know, he... Uh, he, he had that experience and he had that uh, respect of everyone because of the way he carried himself. Okay. I'm, I'm going to ask you a question out of left field now, just to maybe share a bit of uh, who you, you know, are deep down to your core um, with the listeners. Um, what's a skill that Mick Willing has that no one knows about? That no one knows about? Well, that's a good one. Um, look, I think, I think over time... Um, I've become more and more adaptable in my leadership style. So I've, I've lived in different um, circumstances, different commands across policing. Um, you know, in my new vocation now, it's a completely different set of circumstances. And I think the ability to adapt leadership, my leadership style, to, uh, to suit the circumstances uh, and, most importantly, the people at that time is, is probably something that people have observed, but it might not be widely known. Um, you know, and the other thing I think um, is that, you know, I, I, I'm empathetic. I actually care deeply about people. And um, I think that leadership carries a burden and the burden of responsibility is something that I think... That you are, the ability to adapt as a leader, you're, the, you're empathetic and you deeply care about people, that's part of you to, to a core, and the burden of responsibility of leadership and caring about people. 
um, whilst people in and around me over the years know that, um, you know, I, I guess widely across, uh, you know, the community that I work in, people perhaps don't know those um, particular thoughts um, or, you know, um, know that about me, I guess. Okay. So next, you kind of lead into the next question as if we rehearsed it, but we haven't. Um, so the question is, how did you start your leadership journey? Um, and how, you know, and probably I can ask another question from your last answer. How did you learn those skills? So they're probably intertwined, but how did, how did you start your leadership journey in the New South Wales Police? Well, I think, uh, when I look back, I think I started my leadership journey, um, you know, in a, in a true sense. Um, whilst I, sorry, whilst I believe that everyone, leadership is everyone's, um, you know, everyone has a role to play in leadership at all levels. I think that in a traditional sense, uh, I started my leadership journey as a detective sergeant um, back at, at Dubbo when I, I transferred out there after a, um, a career that uh, in the early days was in the inner west at the Homicide and Serial Violent Crime Agency and the New South Wales Crime Commission. I went to the, back out to Dubbo and was a, uh, an investigation manager with 21 detectives um, that were reporting to me. Uh, that was the first time, I guess, I, I sort of felt the burden of leadership. One, it's a privilege. Two, um, you make mistakes, you know, and I, I, the things that I did back then as a, um, a person leading a smaller team um, and the, the way that I managed situations that I learned a lot from um, because whilst we did a lot of good things, um, there were a lot of things where, you know, that, did, that were difficult um, to deal with. So over time and in, in different circumstances, you learn more about leadership. Um, as time evolved, I ended up becoming um, the crime manager or detective inspector out there, so I had a, a bigger team. And some of those early mistakes, um, I, I was able to, I guess, adapt and, and, uh, and not make those same mistakes again. One of the big things that I learned uh, around that time was the was the beauty i guess or the strength that can come from pulling a team together around activities like you know a friday afternoon um you know drinks at the local bowling club or back then we used to the team used to go for runs together in the morning and things like that but that team the um, binding of a team or combining you know pulling a team around a, a common cause or uh, you know uh, i guess or pulling a team through together through other activities and not just work was something that I learned a lot from at the time and it, it was pretty successful. So did you, um, and I've heard, I've heard um, it's funny, the first two people I've interviewed in this series say exactly the same thing in a, in a different way but exactly the same context. Did you learn that from someone else or is it just something you wanted to try or you knew it would work? Just, yeah, just something that the club at, um, at Dubbo that was pretty quiet and, um, you know, it was one of those things where on a Friday afternoon, you know, at five o'clock, um, you'd knock off and, and those who wanted to come went to the, uh, went to the bowling club um, for a beer or an orange juice or whatever. Um, those that didn't um, obviously do whatever they want. You know, if you wanted to stay for, for 10 minutes or, or five hours, it was up to you. But it would sort of, I saw the value of, of the team downloading and, um, out, you know, it was quiet, it was a good environment um, that the team was able to, talk about the week's events and what was coming up in a way that was safe and um, it just built camaraderie. The same as uh, that sort of exercising that it was a, a bunch of people who were, were uh, enjoyed running. Um, so, you know, we'd get together and, and go for runs in the morning before work. Um, it was the same thing. It was that shared 
experience that built that sort of teamwork and that collegiality, which I could see building over time. Um, but those those things work in different circumstances. There's yeah, there's other times as a leader uh, where you you can't do that for because of the, I guess the sheer size of your team. Um, you know the circumstances that you face at the time, and you've got to use other techniques. Okay. I think that's uh, that's very helpful for other listeners, and it's and it's your your theme is so so um, similar to like the first lady I had on the show was uh, the manager the, the nurse unit manager for homelessness at um, St Vincent's Hospital, and the second guy is the CEO of the Sydney Marathon, and he they both have the same message: you've got to have fun with your team. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so. I think we're nearly like we you, you you've kind of taken me there already. You're you're, you're a investig you're the crime manager, so a detective inspector at Dubbo. Um, yeah. What comes next? Well, you know, at the time uh, you know, I had a, a boss there who who taught me an enormous amount about the the mechanics, I guess, or the processes around management. And there's a difference between management and leadership in, in my mind, but then, but how to manage the systems and processes in a, in a policing command. And I learned a lot from that. He moved on uh, in mid-2007 and had asked me to go with him um, and move to, uh, uh, back to metropolitan Sydney. Being a Dubbo guy born and bred and I was home, that was a difficult decision. So um, I decided that if I was going to to leave that I would prefer to do it um, being promoted out and uh, yeah, with a sense of purpose. So uh, I applied for some superintendent jobs that were, were going under an old, old process now and um, in uh, mid uh, mid 2007, around the same time, I ended up winning uh, a superintendent's role or a local area commander's role as it was known at uh, the far south coast local area command down at Batemans Bay. So in October of 2007, that's where I found myself with my, my wife and our our first daughter, who was a baby. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the um, the most challenging and indeed loneliest experiences um, I've ever had as a leader. And it, it certainly uh, demonstrated to me that leadership sometimes comes with a price and that's uh, that can be loneliness. It can be difficult. And it was a difficult command to walk into. Um, you know, I was 35 years old, um, one of the, the youngest superintendents, uh, I guess, that the organisation has had. There have been others um, at, around that age, but um, it was a challenge because I felt that everyone was watching and expecting me to, uh, to fail because of my age. Um, and the second thing was, you know, it was a command that needed to be um, to be dragged into the future in lots of ways. And so I went in there with a with a real sense of purpose, and um, spent I went about you know eighteen months um, <clears throat> with a with a style of leadership that was probably a lot harder than uh, than um, I, I evolved into. So I was much um, more focused on um, you know moving on poor performers, getting the command going in a way um, that had not occurred before in that command. And, um, yeah, it was probably a lot harder as a leader um, on staff than, uh, than I eventually became. So when you say you were lonely um, and you, you kind of talked about what you had to do, did you have support or, um, or were you, did you have someone yeah, you could talk to? But I, I didn't, you know, I, I was, I'd never, uh, never even been to Batemans Bay, it was where the, the command office was. I'd, um, I'd never been down to the far south coast. Um, 
I had no family support other than my wife and our baby. Um, I went in there uh, knowing that I had to to you know, move the command onwards and upwards, and that I also knew that that meant um, you know taking some difficult decisions in relation to some staffing, um, some of the people there, and sometimes that means you have friends. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you've got to do it, and uh, so it becomes lonely. In terms of support, yeah, of course I had, um, you know, my then region commander at the time, assistant commissioners, um, but, you know, they, they weren't there. They weren't there physically. Um, you know, you, of course you can pick up the phone, but uh, at the end of the day, you are there as a leader by yourself, um, you know, with the buck stopping with you, making decisions that sometimes aren't popular. And, you know, I learned then... Um, a lesson, a valuable lesson, that sometimes, uh, you, you know, you, you have to make decisions that, uh, that are unpopular and that um, it is better to make those decisions than to um, worry about your popularity um, as, a, as a measure of how successful you are as a leader. And now, in saying that, um, you know, I also believe, and in, in over time, I again came back to what I guess learned when I was an inspector in Dubbo, and the power of actually having a team that comes together, feeling that they're working with you rather than for you, can sometimes be very, very powerful. Um, but back then, um, that was, uh, you know, a, a, I was much harder, and um, as a leader, and it was a style that I. Um, that I adopted, and it was probably a style that was um, was a little bit more common across um, policing back then. Okay. So how did you... It sounds like um, there were some pretty lonely days and maybe lonely nights. How did you deal with that personally? Um, look, I... Well, you just, you just have to plow on. You know, I had a plan. Um, everywhere I've ever gone, I've had a plan, uh, and I stuck to my plan, you know, around it. So... Um, you know, back, there was a lot of time on the road driving up and down, you know, what, what was a command, which was about 400 kilometres in length. Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking to myself about it. Um, I've always been an exerciser, so, you know, my downtime, I would I'd get out and, uh, you know, I'd cycle or run and I'd do those sort of things um, to keep myself physically active and therefore mentally um, active. And then... Uh, yeah, a lot of time travelling, but a lot of time um, thinking about, you know, what this all means and um, and a lot of time in your own space. Okay. So, uh, you've probably taken me there a little bit, but what are some of the joys and challenges of being a superintendent in the New South Wales Police? So, you've already talked about your first command. I believe your second command might have been Wollongong, I think. And you, and you... you know, so answer that by sort of talking about that journey so I went to Lake Illawarra which was a bigger command it was probably the easiest biggest command in the southern region at the time um, and I went there because I was doing a good job um, down at far south coast you know certainly the new region commander at the time um, saw that and wanted me to take over that command at Lake Illawarra so I walked into a command there that was completely different to the one that I'd been in it was a really high functioning command great uh, esprit de corps great sense of purpose and um, a really, really strong team that had been built by a previous commander that had been there. So the, for me, the, you know, it was completely different. A group of people, about 250 staff, and then not losing the, the momentum, keeping the momentum going. 
Um, so that was another challenge in itself. So um, I learned a lot from the, the way that that command was running as well and took a much, a, a much softer, more collegiate approach to managing the staff there, and I think it worked. And the command, the command uh, continued to perform really, really well. Um, so that was a joy to actually see what can can happen uh, when a command or a group of people commit around um, doing a good job because it's kind of like a force multiplier, it builds on itself. And I guess you know from there I spent um, uh, ten or, or eleven months um, as a staff officer to one of the deputy commissioners. At the time, um, that was a decision that <laughs> you just get a phone call from someone saying this is what you're going to do next, um, <laughs> which was which was interesting in itself. Um, and I enjoyed it because I, I saw uh, the ins and outs of the top executive in the New South Wales Police Force. And it taught me too that, that they were no different from me. There wasn't any special source or magic <laughs> around what they were doing. They weren't intellectually, you know, uh, rocket scientists in what they were doing. They were the same as me. Um, just in a different circumstance um, and with different responsibilities in terms of leadership. So that was interesting. Um, and from there, um, well, I guess there, um, I, I got my first dose of organisational um, little P politics and certainly big P politics with government, um, which was interesting. And um, from there, I, I went to the Homicide Squad in 2011, uh, late 2011, as the commander there and stayed there for six years. Um, an incredibly privileged position to be to be given um, with a, a high performing group of people who uh, culturally were different again from anything that I'd experienced because they were so mission focused on, uh, on doing the right thing and speaking for those people who are no longer able to speak for themselves, who had been, um, you know, lost their lives through violence that um, the esprit de corps was incredible. Um, hardly any, if any, sick leave. Um, everyone had worked really, really hard to get to the homicide squad because it had that sort of sense of elitism about it, mm. but in a good way. And it was great. Um, but it was an, an enormous challenge to walk in there. Um, again, I was 39. And, uh, you know, big personalities, really people have been there for a long long time in uh, many ways and i thought how do i walk into that place and actually you know make something of this um because i was the first outsider i guess from um what was then state crime command yeah. uh, um to come into a position like that and certainly into what was seen as probably the top squad in that area so i just might just um just uh, ask a question there because you started this um interview with as a young kid, you were either going to be an archaeologist or a, or a, um, or a detective. And then your your first lesson in leadership was Doc Holliday, who had homicide experience. So it must have been tempting. At thirty nine, I've um I've reached my goal. <laughs> uh, I, I worked in homicide um for a short period of time um, after leaving and uh, Leichhardt, um, or the Leichhardt Patrol, as it became. And, um, but that was as a senior constable and, um, you know, really working on, on one particular job. But, yeah, yeah, you arrive at Homicide, and I remember somebody saying to me, a chief superintendent, detective chief superintendent with many, many years of Homicide experience, had said to me, um, mate, a lot of people can say that they've been 
um, and worked at the Homicide Squad because not many people can say they've been a boss. Yeah. And I, and I was the ninth person ever to take it over. Um, it was an extremely, um, you know, an amazing experience. Um, you know, so I, the way that I, I did feel, you know, like, wow, I've made it. Like, if, if my career ends as the boss of Homicide, what, a, what an amazing achievement. Um, I, you know, it was high profile, media every day, um, politics around uh, the coronial jurisdiction, our oversight bodies with what were, you know, critical incidents. Um, and for your, your listeners who might know, those incidents um, that the homicide investigate involved, the use of force um, where, where someone uh, loses their life. Um, extreme challenges. Uh, two police officers that I personally knew murdered during my time um, as the homicide commander um, really confronting emotionally draining uh, homicide investigations that I was just in awe of the staff and the, um, the leadership in that squad that were doing particularly jobs involving children um, so yeah it was, it was a challenge so I guess preempting um, perhaps a question like how, how do you do that yeah yeah into that sort of set of circumstances I took a position um, centred around two things, and one was that I would be consistent with everything I did. I'd be consistent the way I dealt with everyone. Um, I wouldn't treat one inspector different to another inspector um, in terms of process and those sort of things. The second thing was that I was I was open and transparent with with the leadership within the homicide squad and said I'm not the homicide investigator, you're the expert homicide investigator. You people are. My job is to is to lead the squad, set some strategic direction, and get you the resources that you need to get the job done. And I and I purposely and consciously stuck to that. Yeah. Um, you know, it was. You know, I was not in any position to come in and tell someone how to run the tin tax of a homicide investigating investigation because they are all experts at it. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I had um, I had no idea going into this interview that uh, you were there for six years. I mean that's an achievement in itself. So um, yeah, I think anyone's been um, as long. Um, I, I think the incumbent um, at the moment um, might be getting towards that and has done a great job. But um, yeah, it was such a privilege. Yeah, uh, a privilege. congratulations to it because it it is the pinnacle I think of um, policing is to be a homicide detective and uh, as that chief superintendent said to be the boss of the the people investigating the worst of things that happen to people in our community. So hats off to you, Mick. That's really good. Um, so who I, I probably who were your mentors, and what and like your you've been a superintendent for a while now. When when you go through these stories, um, what were some of the development courses that you did around this time? And and maybe I can prompt you there. I think I've heard you talk about Harvard before the FBI course. So over to you. Yeah, look, so who were my mentors? So in my mind, I see my first mentor as being Doc Halliday back back in those early days. Um, you know, he took a shine to me. He got me into plain clothes. Um, you know, he also got um, another deputy commissioner, um, you know, Nick Callis, into plain clothes years ago, and they were very, very, very tight. And um, sadly, um, Doc um, passed away, um, God bless his soul, um, a month after I took over the homicide squad. Oh, wow. The last conversation I had with him, um, he had motor neuron disease, and um, it was it would you could hardly speak, but he was so proud. Wow! Um, yeah. Because um, Nick Carlos had also been the homicide squad commander, it was a very pinnacle part of his career as well. So, True. Um, that was 
he was my first sort of mentor in my mind. Um, as things developed, um, I, uh, as an in, uh, first time superintendent, I spent um, time doing programs over the Australian Institute of Police Management, um, um, as I'm sure Al you have as well. And it was, for me, I liked the style of, uh, of leadership there or leadership thought there because it made you think about yourself as a leader. Um, and I got a lot out of it. So I did uh, some programs there, um, one of being the Police Management Development Program and then uh, Police Executive Leadership Program. And as a result of that, I uh, won a scholarship, um, which was, I only had it for three years, but I won the first one to go to, um, it was a university of my choice anywhere in the world to study um, a, a program as part of executive education. Um, they were really pushing me to go towards uh, the Harvard University, Harvard Kennedy School around government. But I had previously um, uh, completed an MBA um, when I was a detective sergeant and Master of Business Administration. And I thought to myself, um, no, I'd like to go to Harvard Business School because a couple of things. One, um, if anything ever happened in, in uh, and I had to leave the police force, it, it's another sort of feather in your cap outside um, yeah. of, of government or outside of the organisation. Um, and secondly, they had a program there called a High Potential Leadership Program and um, it looked really, really good. And um, I ended up um, applying for and going and doing that at Harvard Business School in 2011. So um, that was an, a, an amazing experience. It was a life-changing experience for me because um, oh, here I was, there was uh, 96 of us in the program four people from the public sector um you know when i say the public sector there was an executive officer to the director of national intelligence um there were people that were incredible um people and uh, he was me a lonely then <laughs> superintendent for new south wales police force and it taught me um through some experiences there that you know i, I could hold my own with anyone yeah and um it was an amazing experience so uh, prior to me going, however, um, I received a phone call from uh, then Deputy Commissioner Andrew Colvin from the Australian Federal Police, who had been uh, had the privilege of spending a year at Harvard um, and been sent over um, by the AFP to study, and he'd just arrived back and he'd uh, heard that I'd won this scholarship, so he rang me and said, "Hey, um, I just got back from Harvard." Um, really, really thrilled for you. I'll, I'll make some introductions if you like, and um, when you get over there, so you, you can you can meet people while you're there. Um, if you've got any spare time, you know, would you would you like to meet up? You know, if you could come down to Canberra, we could catch up for half an hour. Wow. Uh, I ended up driving down there, and um, we spent probably an hour and a half. And I just uh, I love the way that uh, his brain works. Very, 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 um, you know, deep strategic thinker um and yeah, we hit it off and i came back and i'd said to uh the deputy commissioner dave owens who i was working for <clears throat> we were talking about mentoring and i said to him um well if i ever wanted to be mentored by somebody besides you boss <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I said andrew colvin um and he said i oh, know aj that's his nickname yeah. so he just picked up the phone in front of me and rang him and said, hey, AJ, um, Dave here, how would you feel about mentoring Mick? And he just went, yeah. Wow. And so um, uh, Andrew eventually became the Australian Federal Police Commissioner 
and our mentor relationship was sort of semi-formal, um, lasted from that time uh, into the time when he became the uh, deputy, uh, sorry, the Australian Federal Police Commissioner. Ironically, years later, we ended up working hand in hand uh, when I was the state recovery coordinator for the bushfire disaster, and he was the national um, recovery coordinator. So we worked hand in hand, and to this day, um, we are we are very good friends. We're going to catch up on Monday when I'm in Canberra. Beautiful, beautiful, yeah. and I think that's a mentor. Um, over the years, outside of, of mentors outside of policing, um, which have been very important um, in the private sector. Um, some, uh, you know, male and female, uh, entrepreneurial, um, others, um, you know, semi-formal people um, who I still catch up with today who are very, very influential around um, government and, uh, and business. Uh, and each, and each of them has sort of taught me different things. Um, and I guess that leads to my, my uh, final point there on mentoring. I think that you, you need a number of people to talk to because... Um, because each of them will give you something uh, else about them, you know, or give you or contribute to you and your leadership style in some some way. Um, of course, your your direct boss, you know, um, in some form or fashion, can be a mentor too. But you need to be able to have conversations with people who um, understand you and uh, and are able to give you that time to have safe conversations. Um, because sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees, and you need somebody to to um, you know, point you in the right direction or give you some advice um, to, to let you contemplate you know, the circumstances that face you and sometimes that can't be your direct boss. Are you prepared, if you can think about one of those conversations, are you prepared to give an example about that? Um, I mean, I'm not out of the blue, but... <laughs> yeah, well, uh, look, um, you know, there are... Yeah, yeah, look, in terms of not... I can... Think of conversations I've had with with Andrew about bosses uh, at the time. I'll just leave it as broad as that, where I could see their strengths and incredible strengths, but I could also see their flaws, and they couldn't see it themselves, you know. And I'm sure people could say the same thing about me, but um, you know, it was one of those things where I I had conversations with Andrew about um, a particular boss that I had, and thought, you know, that guy's brilliant, but. Uh, and, and that guy was actually talking about his mentors in the same way that I was thinking about him. Was that, you know, you, you're brilliant, but you act like a child sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I wanted to, um, you know, explore that and sort of go, is that normal? Like, you know, and, and so, you know, I was able to talk to Andrew about my, my thoughts and feelings. It didn't take away from my admiration for the person yeah. or their abilities, but it was just one of those things where you observe people and you go and you kind of come to the conclusion again that they're no different from you or I. We've all got strengths and weaknesses. But I, I was able to talk to Andrew in particular about those strengths and weaknesses that I could see in others. And that's... Um... The trust, because it's a, it's a confidential, yeah. trusting relationship, yeah, yeah. Now, you've been... Mentoring too, you know, it, I've, and I've participated in many t- times as a mentor and as a, not so much as a mentee, but as a mentor in a formal program. Um, it can work, but you've really got to connect with people to really get the best out of it. You yeah. Know? So. And you've obviously got that, you know, I mean, it sounds like, Anne, uh, you know, former commissioner um, Andrew Colvin is, is just as much a mate as he is a mentor. Absolutely, you know, um, and I'm sure we'll get 
too. So I left policing earlier this year, and he was one of the um, you know the, the people in my network that helped me um, you know evolve and transition into a into a second career in the second life. So okay. absolutely, um, he's been great, and as did others. Yeah. Well, I might well I, it's just a couple of stages that I want to go through before we go to what you just where you just went to just with that answer with how Andrew Colvin helped you in your current circumstances. Um, so let's go to the, the um, I think you, you also did the FBI course as well, didn't you? No, I didn't. I didn't um, do it, but others around me um, have, have done it. Um, you know, there's a similar theme that sort of comes out, I guess, from my discussions with those who've done um, the various FBI courses and that sort of this sense of journey and the sense of camaraderie with your teammates and your and the course participants that's really, really strong. So the, all the sort of leadership programs I've done, I've, I felt um, that that's probably one of the most important, um, I guess, learnings or, or takeaways is that sort of sense of uh, camaraderie that you, um, you take away from some of those programs. Okay. I think um, I've heard you talk about the Harvard course before. One of your lecturers was John Cotter, wasn't he? The, the, yeah. the, the change management guru that we all read about. So you, you actually met that guy in person. Yeah, yeah I did. And I remember the day, because um, he came into the room and everyone, it was like it was at the centrepiece of the whole program. And you know, you're talking about a program that put us through acting school for, for a few days and things like that. Um, it was, so John Cotter was, a, was an absolute um, legend. You know, I'd, I'd read about him. He's one of those um, leadership uh, academics that is renowned and his eight steps of change of, of leading change is famous and um, I uh, he was coming in on a Wednesday I remember it and the whole day was sort of everyone was in anticipation waiting for it sorry in the days leading up and he was going to start at sort of eight o'clock in the morning and we're all sort of there in this massive amphitheatre and um, as, as Harvard is that's the way they set out and where and he was renowned as a person who would um, kind of come into the room if you didn't get a feeling for the room um, he'd leave because <laughs> okay. uh, he could do that <laughs> yeah, yeah. so we're sitting there waiting and we're sort of waiting 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 and um, uh, we look down you know about 10 minutes goes past and he's late and we look down and he was actually sitting on the ground in the amphitheatre like leaning against a wall just watching everyone wow he got up and he walked over and he started um, with an old overhead projector you know the one where you put yeah, the, yeah. The, the clear thing on the end and he started writing and we're all looking at us going what is this like, you know <laughs> um it was 2011 but we had videos yeah <laughs> and he was like uh it was just uh we were thinking this is bizarre and uh as he no notes uh, he talked and led us through a leadership sort of i guess uh his thoughts on leadership over the course of the next of that whole day, it finished about five o'clock, and I guarantee you, Al, at the end of it, there was not a dry eye in that room. Wow. It was incredible the power that he spoke about leadership wow. and what that can do wow. with which stories. Um, it was just, um, you know, just thinking about it now, like I can I can feel the hair on the back of my neck go up. Wow. It was incredible. Um, so yeah, what a privilege, and I. I remember at, uh, at the recess break, you know, he's sort of standing there and I thought, stuff this, I'm going to go down and get a photo with him. So I walked down there and sort of said, oh, you know, Professor, would you mind a photo? And he had this photo and that was fine and I've still got it. At the lunch break, there was a line-up huh. of people doing it. So I broke the trend and uh, 
and sort of, or set the trend, I should say, and so everyone was getting photos with him there. Yeah. Incredible. Well, he's, he's an absolute legend, so, um, yeah, it's, that's amazing. It is a privilege that you were in that room and you were good enough to be in that room, so, well, yeah, a, a real privilege. Again, well done. Um, so let's go to the jump to Assistant Commissioner, um, and I'll let you talk about this, but from my knowledge, you were the, you know, the Assistant Commissioner of the Counterterrorism Command, the biggest met metropolitan command, the Central Metropolitan Command, um, yep. and then I think you went from there, you just you touched on that, the bushfire recovery, working with um, some pretty famous people, like you said, Andrew Colvin, and, Sh and the other uh, well-known person is Shane Fitzsimmons. So. Um, do you just want to talk us through the jump to Assistant Commissioner? And so, I've been at the homicide for six years, and um, you know, I've, I've reiterated and said, um, and as we agree, it was a privileged position, and six years is a long time, but, uh, but to be brutally honest, um, I thought after four years there um, that whilst I was uh, enjoying the privilege of that role, I felt that the team needed someone else. And, yeah. I, and I do believe that you can stay too long and it's not just for yourself that you need to move on and do something fresh but for the team that's around you they, they need someone fresh mm. and someone with new ideas and <clears throat> new energy so um, yeah the way that the organisation New South Wales Police Force was then it was pretty stagnant at the top and, um, and I kind of felt um, I got to the point where I started to think about things like moving out in the private sector or doing other things <clears throat> because I couldn't see movement. Yeah. Uh, as as happens, um, you know, politics is politics, and very quickly um, there's a change in leadership at the top, and a new commissioner comes in, and um, that commissioner, Nick Fuller, um, pretty quickly set about um, his own, you know, implementing his own agenda, and part of that was to to um, was to. Uh, to, to promote, uh, as it turned out, um, eight assistant commissioners very quickly, and I was fortunate enough to be one of those. I um, I had always uh, been fascinated with the counterterrorism environment. Um, I thought that was um, the pinnacle assistant commissioner role, to be honest. Um, I, given the global context, given the, uh, the, the time, um, what was happening with terrorism around the world, uh, and it was it was great. I would have been happy as being the chief superintendent there. Yeah. But um, as it turned out, um, the uh, incumbent at the time, um, Assistant Commissioner Mark Murdoch, was going to retire, and um, uh, I ended up going there. I, I certainly um, had discussions with um, Commissioner Fuller and uh, and one of the deputy commissioners, Dave Hudson, about going to State Crime Command, uh, and there was a view um, that. That was where I should go. Um, not a strong view, because Commissioner Fuller had it in his mind that I would go to um, counterterrorism. But I said um, no. I would rather go to counterterrorism and be stretched and um, and to do something that involved geopolitics because I like it. Yeah. Uh, and if that meant waiting a little bit longer for um, for for Mark um, Murdoch to retire, well, so be it. And that's what happened. Um, I ended up uh, going there in. Um, I started the 1st of November 2017, although I'd been there uh, for a few weeks prior to that, sort of learning and shadowing Mark, but a great privilege, a great privilege. Um, you know, got to, uh, got to travel the world, um, spent time uh, in the Middle East, uh, Northern Ireland, America, um, you know, through England, of course, the United States on a number of occasions, um, you know, connections with the Firebys community. 
and it was just an amazing experience, an amazing experience. And um, some friendships developed at, at the senior, most senior levels that um, are with me to this day. Um, so uh, my counterpart uh, in ASIO and my counterpart in the Australian Federal Police and I were a, a three-person decision-making uh, group called a, a JMC, Joint Management Committee, and those two people um, uh, uh, remain very, very close friends of mine to this day. So it was, it was an amazing experience and I was enjoying it immensely, um, but I also knew that um, that uh, the commissioner um, and perhaps some others saw some potential for me to, to grow um, further and perhaps even go up. So I, um, the commissioner, after a period of time, um, said I want to, um, to swap you with the incumbent at the central metropolitan region, as you say, the, the, the largest um, sort of most complex region in, um, in New South Wales, um, which has the city. Uh, and all things protest attached to it. And um, so I ended up going and becoming the Central Met Commander and uh, the incumbent uh, spot with me went to counterterrorism. And pretty quickly after that happened, you know, we had, uh, were confronted with things um, like related to global events like the Black Lives Matter movement. We had massive protests in Sydney um, at, at the time and, uh, you know, Extinction Rebellion, climate change protests and those sort of things. I should say Black Lives Matter protests came later, but um, climate change protests, which were which were really, really difficult to deal with um, and uh, going into the Central Met region, it was humming along pretty well, but I um, really set about um, solidifying the leadership team across uh, the, the 10 or so commands that I had and um, I think I think we did a pretty good job as a team, um, coming together and setting some some direction. Um, and I enjoyed it. And uh, I did miss counterterrorism, to be honest, um, because that was something which is inherently something I like. But um, Central Met was good. But I it was going along okay. Uh, and then uh, all of a sudden, sadly for the state of New South Wales and Victoria and Queensland, um, the bushfire disaster took place at the end of two thousand and nineteen and uh, into 2020 and uh, yeah, there's a little bit in this house so bear with me yeah right yeah yeah I, commissioner i ran new year's eve um for the, the first time um, as the police commander for the you know million people in the city in and around the city um which was a huge event to, to run and a privilege to do that and the next day i remember um after having a sleep you know the commissioner rang me and said could you um you might want to go out to the Royal Fire Service headquarters on uh, Saturday because it's sadly it's probably going to be a, another really bad day, and um, you know part of your development um, would might be shadowing the state emergency operations control at the time. Yeah. Um, so I, I went out there on this Saturday and uh, you know big centre humming along um, the the bushfire disaster had. You know, devastated parts of northern New South Wales at that time, parts uh, prior to Christmas on the outskirts of Sydney. And, um, you know, the, the next catastrophic area, um, which sadly um, went up, was down the far south coast area. And I, you know, obviously had worked there. And so it's this particular Saturday, I remember the alarms going off and I remember, um, you know, the, the response was was amazing. Uh, the, the not on New Year's Eve, there'd been a massive evacuation and loss of life down there. Um, and so this was sort of part two of that. And I've arrived at, 
at uh, Real Fire Surf Head Health uh, Service, Service Headquarters um, on this particular day. It was also the day, ironically, that um, the then Prime Minister announced that the first time ever, um, 3,000 reservists were going to be recalled out with the Australian Defence Force and deployed to New South Wales. Um, it was a huge political uh, issue at the time between the federal and state government, but I happened to be there exactly at the time that decision was made. And uh, to cut another very long story short, <clears throat> Commissioner Fuller, uh, the head of Premier and Cabinet, um, um, uh, Tim Reardon and the Premier um, made a decision to appoint me as the state recovery coordinator and, um, and to lead that, um, I guess, sit over the top of the uh, Australian Defence Force recovery efforts, uh, the whole of government recovery efforts, um, because the size and scope of the devastation was something that had never been seen before and it needed something different. Um, that was a huge challenge, um, but an amazing privilege to lead, um, to lead that recovery effort. And my job was to, quote, turbocharge the recovery effort. And so, you know, the question you may ask is, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, yeah, go for it. I, I literally sat in a room with Brigadier Mick Garraway from the ADF, um, a one-star uh, Brigadier General who I admire immensely, um, on the first day, uh, the Sunday, and said, how are we going to do this? <laughs> and I, I asked for somebody from government who could help me understand and, and pull the right levers across the public service to, to get things done. Uh, and then, you know, with my policing colleagues around me, just sort of started to build from scratch um, this uh, a tasking system because we had ADF and they needed to be tasked on the ground to actually do things. Because um, nothing, it didn't exist. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, the emergency management structures um, that are in place with, uh, with EACONs, you know, emergency operation controls at local and regional level, um, were there, but they were really used to the response side of things and uh, the recovery efforts were largely driven by local government, uh, of which there were varying skill levels and, and capabilities. So I kind of came up with this idea to flip it on its ear and use the EACONs um, you know, to, to, to put on another hat, an additional hat, and drive recovery as well as response, because I knew I could rely on police commanders and inspectors and sergeants and senior constables on the ground to do things and feed up the, the needs, um, the recovery needs uh, up to, you know, where we were located essentially so we could deploy ADF resources yep. uh, in an effective way. So that started to work. I also then <clears throat> came up with an idea that, um, you know, across a number of what I call recovery streams, I needed people who could make decisions and move resources really quickly to get stuff done. So um, I came up with, uh, and, I, and I, when I say people who could make decisions, I talk about deputy secretary level yeah. um, across the board. So we had um, disaster funding. So I had a deputy secretary level from uh, Treasury, you know, health and wellbeing. I had the chief health officer, Kerry Chant, and others um, uh, involved there, you know, a deputy secretary in charge of, um, of housing um, and animals and agriculture because we had livestock that were, you know, literally um, deceased and rotting. We had to yeah. do something really quickly. So I needed somebody, yeah, the deputy director of Department of Primary Industries was part of it. Um, business tourism and industry, um, you know, had a deputy secretary level people, uh, people involved there. Um, infrastructure. 
environment and waste. Like, so how do you start the cleanup process? Um, you know, where you've got two thousand four hundred odd homes that are being destroyed in New South Wales alone, uh, let alone businesses and schools and infrastructure. So, <clears throat> so I set up this uh, what I call the government coordination committee, and we met every single day for months at eleven o'clock, and. Um, I started to coordinate across this committee um, and uh, it, it got a real hum about it and got going and it was really good and that, that was the thing that actually probably um, you know, was, a, was a major success because the, the ADF became part of that so this coordination across this committee was what drove the recovery efforts uh, outside the normal um, emergency management recovery effort uh sorry structures i should say so an incredible privilege and uh then you know all of a sudden we were confronted with this thing called coronavirus that we can I, can I, heard over a few days was coming can i take it can i take it you know, we started to go well, how do you maintain a recovery effort where you've got to have people on the ground yeah. um, delivering recovery services but you can't because there's this weird virus that could kill you out there and so we sort of had to transition into both, um, sort of managing both, which was, uh, which was really difficult. But the structures that were set up and the processes worked. Um, so just, um, I, might, I might just, um, uh, I, I, I forgot how that went. They, I, I tried to um, interject there and I apologise for that. But um, if, I do remember your bushfire um, government coordination um, strategies did merge into COVID. But something that I wanted to kind of highlight is, um, if I can uh, describe it this way, you you develop you and your colleagues, like a small group of um, leaders at the right level, developed an, an emerging leadership style that had never never been seen before to address an emergency that we'd never seen before. That's right, and it was. Um... Uh, look, you know, uh, we, we, the, the pace of those early days was incredible. Um, I, I remember I had, you know, a couple of staff officers around me who would move me from room to room at the rural fire service headquarters because I just got swamped with people. Um, and it was, I needed space to think. But what got humming and what, what got going well um, was this coordination across, across the spectrum. So I had probably, I think, up to a dozen um, at one point deputy secretaries or that level or equivalents um, um i won't say reporting to me because i didn't manage it that way it was sort of in a team that was coordinated across across things um you know i had good people from criminal cabinet um you know i had a good friend of mine mark prendergast came out of transport to work with me along along uh, you know to help coordinate government um you know it worked and it was uh you know part, part of the the thing too was it was such a confronting scenario for the state um and it's funny how quickly we forget when we had to go into to COVID, which was another amazing thing but but you know i was saying to these um these eminent top public servants incredibly brilliant you know i want you to report to me every day about what you do and it was like well we don't kind of do it that well i said we have to because um you know part of it too we we, we built things like a you know dashboard so we could keep track across uh, um across you know, everything that was happening on the ground. There was a, a tasking system, as I said, that evolved. And I ended up bringing somebody from counterterrorism in at chief superintendent level who um, I knew had the right skill sets to actually run that sort of a tasking process and did a tremendous job. 
um, you know, it's a decision that you take. You know, sometimes, um, you know, you don't pick people because they're good friends and that sort of stuff. You pick people with the right skill sets to be around you to get the job done. Um, that, that was a, that was something which I'm glad that uh, that we did. But I also had the weight of um, the Premier and um, certainly the Head of Premier and Cabinet and uh, Commissioner Fuller behind me. I mean, Commissioner Fuller would ring me five times a day. Um, yeah, it was... It was it was a fascinating process. So, I think um, you I, I think you're being very modest. You said you had the weight of Department of Premier and Cabinet and Commissioner Fuller, but they had the trust in you <laughs> to put you there. Uh, so yeah. It's, it's um, uh, yeah. Look, you know, and that was um, I mean, it was uh, I guess you know knowing what I know now was part of Commissioner Fuller's investment in me as a as a leader and as a perhaps a future leader um, within the organisation at a higher level and I. I, um, you know, I was very thankful for that. Um, but yeah, they had confidence that I could actually get it done, which was which was amazing. Um, you know, and, and the one thing that it, it, I walked away from it with um, was is one experience that um, nobody else has ever had um, to that point, and certainly relationships at the highest levels across the public service. Um, that was such a reward um, for me, and uh, good good friendships to this day across the public service and it, it, it led on to other things from a leadership perspective that um, yeah, I was lucky to experience as well. So I might just um, get you to reflect on that a little bit um, and you probably covered a little bit but what what you achieved with your peers um, like your virtually equals the deputy secretaries across government yeah. you, you achieved you actually thought outside the square and created something that had never existed before. How did that, what was the environment and what, what persuasion, what skills, was there any blues, resistance? How, how did you make that happen so quickly? To get together, um, together. Management, um, you know, that had been led by a person there who was a decent human being, good person, um, but but they weren't capable of stepping up like that. Um, so you know that person got moved on, and that was that wasn't by me. That was by you know, I guess other decision makers. But uh, that was the only uh, I guess sad part from a human perspective around that leadership journey. But I didn't I didn't get resistance um, because I approached it consciously in a way where I didn't tell other people how to do their job. Probably the same as when I went to homicide. You know, I you know, I, I couldn't tell the chief health officer how to do her job. What I said was, um, and I approached it in a, in a context of a little bit of humility saying, hey, I don't know, teach me as I go along about how we do this together. And so um, I, I, took a, I took a humble approach um, to, to dealing with it, you know, and I remember sitting there, disaster recovery funding arrangements. I said, what are they? You know, and I'm sitting there with Treasury uh, and others, the Secretary of Treasury, the Head of Premier and Cabinet, you know, senior people talking about the fact that, um, you know, within hours there'd be $2 billion announced um, and handed to a new agency that was being set up to, do, to um, administer that funding to help recovery efforts. That ironically was Andrew Colvin ended up leading that agency and I I I had to learn very quickly about all that what all that meant because you know you cannot make mistakes when it comes to you know that sort of 
uh, public funding and money and those things. So, um, yeah, I used, I, I probably just used a bit of a bit of humility as a leader, um, to be honest. It's um, um, there's it's, other things you do too, Al. You know, yeah. I purposely wore my police uniform um, because um, the, uh, the status and gravitas that comes with the police uniform is probably something that inside policing you don't you kind of take it for granted, but others see it as something a little bit different. So I use that um, as I, I guess positioning myself um, as a leader. Um, there was you know other things you, you have to. You've got to leave from the front and be there, you know, and, and get out and about and talk to people on the ground and, and do, um, you know, experience what others are experiencing as well. So I, I, I did all of that, to be honest. I've actually, um, I think it's, I was on LinkedIn, I saw a post from someone and it was your, your image and, and uh, what you just talked about, it was a summary of what you did during that time and, and virtually a thank you. And it kind of summarised all those things. You were there on the ground. You led a response that had never been seen before. You led a team of leaders that had never been seen before. And the outcome was pretty amazing. So I really thank you for... um, Because I didn't know where we were going to go today with this conversation. And I honestly didn't know the ins and outs of what you've just discussed. So thank you for sharing with all of our listeners. um, Because I think this will be a pretty popular interview for everyone to listen to about what how you work with others um, to achieve some amazing things um, in, in, that, in that space. So well done to all of you, really. Like it's, um, I don't think any, anyone really knows that story as much as you just told it just then. So thank you. No, thank you, mate. I think, you know, just flowing on that and just sort of bookending that a bit, you know, um, I've been asked before what was your proudest moment during all of that. And I, I've got to say there was a situation where, you know, those funding arrangements were being rolled out for joint federal-state government um, arrangements and, and money was aside for certain things. And one of those things was small business. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a police officer, you know, here in this environment and we're sort of talking about how do we save and help small business, you know, completely outside my comfort zone. And the funding arrangements were with certain criteria and, and it just wasn't hitting the mark. Um, and businesses were actually closing because um, they just could not compete. There was no, there was no track. There was no consumers. There was, it was, it was a really challenging time. And I remember going and going back to Treasury, talking to Andrew Colvin, and going, "We've got to change this. We've got to change it. Um, and we've got to convince um, up the federal uh, totem pole, and I've got to convince up the state totem pole um, for them to tweak the arrangements because people are losing their livelihood." Like. And we did it. And we actually convinced, um, you know, both state and federal treasury to change the criteria um, from something which was a, was a little bit restrictive to, to something which was easier to get access to, like ten thousand dollar grants. And um, I remember the day Andrew rang me and he said, "I've just spoken to the prime minister and, and we're oh. going to do it." And um, it was, I, I he said, "You might want to ring the head of treasury in New South Wales and the head of premier and cabinet and just let them know." And, um, I had tears in my eyes because I, could, I honestly it was the most um, incredible experience and the money rolled out very quickly I think um, in the matter of a month you know um, about 250 million dollars rolled out to small businesses um, did it save everyone of course not but I'll tell you what it changed it and it changed the whole flavor of, of the recovery effort in terms of community confidence in us and it was probably the you know the, the proudest thing that I, I did I was involved in um, during that time. Well done, mate. I mean that's um, 
Again, the power of, uh, it sounds like relationships, like, <laughs> who would think you'd get a phone call from, from someone, I've just spoken to the committee, I've just spoken to the Prime Minister of Australia and we're going to do it. All, be, all, all because of something that you, you and your team put in place, an idea. So, well done, well done. So, I'm, uh, I'm conscious of, of the time a little bit. Um, we're, we're, um, we're kind of, you've, you've gone from that, uh, the jump to, uh, do you want to talk about Shane Fitzsimmons, your work with him in that, or do you want to jump to... Shane was, um, so I ended up setting up a structure that was called the Disaster Recovery Office, which is a shell structure, really, and then Shane, uh, I handed over uh, the recovery effort and, uh, and things to Shane, who had uh, finished at the Rural Fire Service, did a tremendous job as a leader there, but I uh, took up and designed from there um, what became Resilience New South Wales. So I've known Shane for many years, uh, he's a friend. We, um, we we communicate from time to time, and um, he uh, yeah he, he took over what we in effect um, had kicked off is probably the best way of putting it. So. Okay, um, so what 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 happened then? How do you jump from from all yeah. that all that mayhem and really good stuff um, like influencing true change, um, true effective change? How do you what's the jump to the deputy commissioner? Um, well, I came back um, into the New South Wales Police Force in, in my way, in my way of thinking about back into what was then, um, you know, COVID was hitting massively. Um, we had hotel quarantine operations, which is set up so that the ADF that had been working with me, um, as part of bushfire recovery, had transitioned over to um, to COVID response. Um, to be honest, after what I've been through, I felt a bit flat um, and sort of went. Oh wow, you know, and you, you know, I had this bigger picture view of what was happening and what what was meaningful outside of policing, um, back into policing, which sometimes can be pretty insular in, in the way it looks at itself. And I um, and I I knew that um, I would be um, you know somebody who would be considered for uh, for a deputy commissioner's role. Um, I knew that there was uh, positions at some point that would come up. Um, so I I basically set about. Um, thinking and starting to prepare myself for that. But at the same time, too, that was when you had global issues like Black Lives Matter um, impacting on the city, running protests um, you know, where there's public health orders that say that there's no, there's no more than 30 people can congregate, yet thousands of people want to come and, uh, and protest was a huge challenge. For the first time in years, you know, I found myself, um, my staff found themselves down at the Supreme Court you know, trying to stop protests occurring um, in, a, in a simple sense, which was a huge challenge. Um, so that, that was all happening um, into, uh, you know, at the end of 2020 uh, and into 2021, um, I knew that there would be a deputy commissioner's process coming up. So um, I worked hard. Um, Commissioner Fuller had, um, had uh, given me... Um, a business, an executive coach, um, myself and, and uh, another person, um, an executive coach who was outstanding, and I was working with that person, Stephen Langton from uh, Russell Reynolds. He remains a great friend of mine to this day. So Stephen and I were working together, um, you know, preparing me, uh, preparing me as a leader, preparing my thinking around um, moving up. And indeed, um, the intent was to prepare me uh, to be a person who might be considered as the commissioner one day. Yeah. And um, that was that was going on. And in, in um, for me, my focus was, was getting through and becoming a deputy first. You can't get ahead of yourself. Yeah. 
and uh, and uh, you know, uh, two two um, vacancies came up. Um, you know, I applied, uh, went through the, went through the promotions process, um, and myself and and the current commissioner Karen Webb were were the successful um, applicants, and we, we both became deputy commissioners. Uh, right, I guess we started right as COVID part two kicked in, where. Yeah. Things were starting to lock down in in uh, June July of 2021, um, and that was a uh, that was a, a challenge. So. so what happens then, basically? Um, you you were you became the de- well you were the you were the dep- you were the deputy commissioner of what? Uh, regional New South Wales. Um, okay. So everything outside of metropolitan Sydney, um, I was responsible for plus. Um, our youth and governance governance areas in the uh, in the organisation, which was uh, which was uh, excellent, and they just great great people. So staffing of up to I think about five thousand eight hundred uh, from, from estimates that were uh, under me uh, working with me as part of that broader team. So, but we were focused heavily on COVID because COVID was was again taking off. Uh, the Delta variant was uh, was especially virulent and um, I found myself uh, on occasion attending crisis cabinet Um, I probably attended I don't know a dozen or so probably more times um, both physically and virtually and uh, was I guess an observer to to those processes and uh, an occasional contributor to those processes Um, as government under the former premier uh, Gladys Berejiklian and uh, former deputy premier uh, John Barillaro and others were, were, were leading the response and it was uh, again a privilege to be part of those conversations but a, a steep learning curve as well right. so, so so what ha- I think we're probably into the the last stage where you applied for the commissioner's job is that is that yeah that's right so um, very quickly it was like a almost almost like a two-step process for all of us um so very quickly, um, you know, Commissioner Fuller, after becoming the Deputy Commissioner, um, Commissioner Fuller announced that he was going to um, retire um, early in uh, 2022. And uh, government decided to run a process um, quickly, and uh, they did. So I, I prepared um, as much as I've ever prepared for anything, to be honest, and um, I put a lot of work into a plan that I've been developing for good two years um, and the plan that I had for the organisation um, was was uh, the centrepiece was, was uh, the, the dividend of trust. I wanted to um, rebuild trust with the community after what the way that we had to police COVID. Um, I wanted to, to build trust within the organisation, trust in our systems and processes, trust with each other. Um, and also trust with our stakeholders. And uh, there were other elements to the plan which um, involved obviously technology and, and a range of different things. But I presented that plan at the interview and um, the, the interview panel itself had uh, three commissioners on it, um, a, a professor from Macquarie University, the head of Premier and Cabinet, and the, the Public Service Commissioner. So it was a pretty top-notch panel. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I presented it, and I was really happy with the interview. Um, and uh, from there, um, uh, I guess it, the decision becomes a political decision. And um, uh, literally at that time, uh, I, uh, the, the former Premier... Um, 
resigned, um, you know, left left government, uh, and a new premier came in, and um, the new premier, as is his prerogative, um, made a decision to select someone that wasn't me. Um, and look, in, and that's fine. That was uh, was something that was. Um, yeah, it was, it was a difficult, confronting thing in lots of ways because I knew and I, I knew that I'd gone well and I knew that I had the credentials and the plan to, to do the job and it was a, it was a lifelong dream. Um, sorry, a certainly career-long dream yeah. of, being, um, of being a police commissioner, but, um, you know, life dealt me a card which was different. So ultimately, uh, in January of this year, um, a you know, decision was taken for me to not be part of the team um, that would be at the top of the New South Wales Police Force moving on. And again, um, that, that's the prerogative of a leader, to pick his or her team around them. And I, um, uh, I have, uh, it's a rational and normal thing to do. So I found myself in January of this year, um, for the first time in 31, almost 32 years, um, without a job. And uh, I started to think about, well, how, how does that impact on you? What do you do? Um, you know, as a leader, I led the best commands in the state. Um, I think that, you know, I was privileged to do some pretty good things in the New South Wales Police Force, but it'd been my life since I was, you know, literally 19 or 18. So I, two things I did. And um, I'm glad that I did uh, these things. And the first thing was, through a friend, I connected with a very, very good CEO-level organisational psychologist, a person who specialises in CEO-level or C-suite people transitioning from one career to another. And I started to work with her, and she's tremendous. Um, And to this day, she's my business coach in my, uh, my my new role. Um, the second thing I did, and I'm so, going to be open so, about this, Al, so, is so can I, I just... out and I got help from a clinical psychologist okay. to, deal with, to deal with the sense of uh, loss of identity, um, the loss of position, um, you know, to make some, some sense and meaning from what I was feeling. And I'm glad I did. Um, you know, my wife is a psychologist and she was very encouraging, as you'd expect. Yeah. And it was something that was was really beneficial, you know, like, and I guess it gets back to as a leader, sometimes you're going to throw your hand up too and ask for help, and I did, and, uh, you know, uh, over, a, you know, set myself uh, up pretty quickly to start um, managing myself and, and using my network to look at opportunities that might be out there for somebody with my skill sets, but ultimately what I found myself doing was really thinking about who am I as a person, like, what is it that I really wanted to do, and here was an opportunity uh, regardless of how it came about, where I could actually go on and do something completely different, have a second career, and I guess experience things that I'd never ever thought that I'd experience. Because, like, you know, you kept saying to yourself throughout your career, oh, one day I'll do this, and one day I'll go out and work in the private sector. Well, Andy up, mate, because now it's happening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was what it was like, you know? So I, I started discussions with, um, with uh, people. Um, my friend Andrew Colvin had left, uh, and he was um, had left policing, and he was working with um, you know, Deloitte, one of the big companies. Uh, and we were talking about you know that whole world, and so I started discussions with Deloitte, uh, and they were really good. But I got to the point um, pretty quickly where um, a person suggested to me that I think about Accenture. So Accenture is a global consulting company of seven hundred odd thousand people, and it's truly global. And um, I was introduced to a person who, um, who within a very short period of time, 
uh, introduced me to the CEO of Australia New Zealand for Accenture, and um, and again to cut a long story short, um, they they basically offered me a, an incredible position that I currently have, and that's as a managing director um, running their national security and safety or public safety area. Um, so. I now am uh, in, in the private sector, learning enormous amounts of things really quickly, but still I've got the, still connected to my grounding, particularly in the counter-terrorism area, because I'm dealing with all of those agencies that um, that had, uh, were stakeholders, I should say, in the counter-terrorism and intelligence space, um, Home Affairs, Australian Federal Police, Austrac, those type of agencies um, are all under my gambit in my current role. So incredibly privileged i'm learning day by day again and i find myself back trying to um to pull together a diverse team um to to manage this area of of accenture that uh pretty much like i was back when i was a sergeant or inspector so it's it's interesting what you learn over a period of time same skills same skills different different um different place yeah just different circumstances something I'd, i'd just love to ask you is um like I think everyone who listens to this would be blown away by your dignity, really. Your you know your dignity in handling a situation where you didn't have a job anymore. <laughs> um, you've gone for the you've gone for your dream job, and then all of a sudden you didn't have a job. Um, so how how when I speak to people like yourselves um, at your level. You all seem to have this ability to probably not burn bridges, to, to not behave like a child um, when you probably really want to want to do that. Um, how did you how did you not do that? How did you how did you manage yourself? Yeah, look, it was for me. It was um, you know I, I had the knowledge too that m- that my name went up as the preferred cap, uh, applicant uh, for the commissioner's role. So um, yeah, it was it was a challenge, you know, and you kind of start thinking, well. What happened? <laughs> How did this happen? Um, you know, you, you can't you can't change things that are out of your control, and I knew that, and I knew that there was some rationality um, around the decision to, for me to leave the police force. Um, I started to focus, uh, you know, consciously every day, focus on the future, not the past. Um, yeah, I knew that, um, you know, I, I could, I certainly had views and I could make those public. I was asked many times um, by media to, to publicly comment. Um, I had strong relationships um, and still do with, with many parts of the media, um, but I, I chose not to because I just, I don't know, I'd watch others in other vocations and other parts of life comment uh, on their previous station and I guess their previous organisations, including politicians and others. And there's people out there like, uh, for example, former Prime Minister Julia Gillard, who, um, putting aside politics, in my mind, grew enormously by being dignified after leaving the Prime Ministership. Yeah. And there's no anything. And I thought, I, I, I looked at that and I kind of thought about that. And I also thought about the practicalities of, of it. You know, I had to, you know, like... like who, out of a, you know, a large global company like the one I'm working with, why would they talk, you know, uh, you know come near me if I was publicly throwing my toys out of the cot? Hmm. You know, um, there's lots of factors that come into that, regardless of how you're feeling. So um, to my point earlier about getting help, I got help to deal with that. Yeah. You know, I go, okay, well, what's that, what's that feel like and what's normal? 
because I've spoken to people who had left the New South Wales Police Force at very senior levels, um, uh, you know, under circumstances that they weren't happy with, and some of them are still bitter. And some of them um, have said to me, it took me two years to get over it. Mm. Um, I didn't have two years. Yeah. You know, I didn't have a police pension because I was young as a, as a deputy commissioner and assistant commissioner beforehand. And so, you know, I had to make the most of what I had. So I had a CV with some pretty good things on it, I thought, um, a pretty extensive education and um, a network of people who genuinely cared for me. And so I used that as best I could whilst, you know, at the same time you know, working with, with people to, to focus on the future and not the past. And that's how um, I think, you know, I've landed where I am. Yeah, I really, um, I mean, you're a, a must, in my view, to interview on this program because, um, on this series, because you have behaved in a way with dignity, but I never imagined that you would describe it in the way that you have, because it's, I think it's an example for all of us. So um, hats off to you, Mick. Um, I love that you were honest enough to say your two-pronged uh, things that you did when, when you were without a job. You connected with an organisational psychologist who's now your business coach. And she's obviously done a wonderful job because you're in a great job now. <laughs> um, but your clinical psychologist so that Mick Willing is well enough to look after, firstly, his fam- himself, his family, and the people that, uh, that, that want to work with Mick Willing. Well, thank you, um, Al. Look, and I think you just touched on something that I'd probably like to finish with there. My family, um, throughout the journey, throughout policing, and my family, I've, you know, I said my wife's a psychologist, I've got two daughters in high school. Um, throughout everything, they kept it normal for me, and that was great. You know, my, I absolutely owe them everything because, you know, whilst they were feeling, um, you know, all sorts of their own emotions about um, the journey from superintendent to assistant commissioner to deputy to, to out the other side of the police force and all the things that came with it afterwards, your family are part of that, and they just kept it normal for me, and it was um, it was it was really good. Um, and you know, I owe them everything, mate. And you, um, whatever support mechanisms you have around you, whether it's family or whether it's friends, or whether it's um, professionals, um, you know, you can't do these things on your own. And, and at the end of the day, it's been said many times before, but your family are the ones that are there at the end. So. You've, oh, you've, you've answered yeah. my last question without me even asking it. <laughs> so um, I really uh, admire you, Mick. Um, I'm sure our listeners will. Um, and just probably um, some, something I love about uh, your LinkedIn page, you describe yourself, your first descriptor as husband, I think it is. Um, yeah, so uh, well done to you. Um, if you would like to say one last thing to our listeners, but from me, um, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, and an absolute honour, actually, to hear how someone with your skills, you know, has led the state and its community through some challenging, never, never be seen emergencies, um, to losing your own job, to show to show everyone how you dealt with that is an absolute privilege. So, one last thing from you, and we'll we'll end it. We'll end the interview, Mick. You know, leadership is a is a journey, and um, you know, you make mistakes, you learn from them, but you well, in fact, you never stop learning um, as a leader. But the best part about being a leader is is the privilege of working with other human beings and seeing other human beings succeed. So, um, the thing that I intend to do now, um, moving forward, is use my journey to help others who 
um, are transitioning or to moving into other leadership space. So um, I believe in giving back and paying it forward, and that's part of being a leader as well. Well, that seems to be that, and I'll finish, we'll finish with that because that's perfect because all my research and the, and the, and the reason we've created the, the Courage to Lead series is to find leaders who empower others to lead. So you've finished, <laughs> you've finished with what we're all about, Mick, so thank you. Um, and I wish you so, uh, so much success and well-being for your family and everyone that comes into contact with you. So thanks very much, and I'll, we'll end it there. Have a, have, a, have a great day. Thank you. See ya. Bye.